Hello and welcome to the Boot Room Podcast, which is brought to you in association with EHM Sports Management. Now, I have to say I've been looking forward to recording tonight's podcast because for those of you that don't know, both myself and, and Alan Rogers are massive Liverpool fans and Christy Holly, unfortunately for him, is an Arsenal fan. Now, I got a text probably five minutes ago from Christy saying he's been caught up in a team meeting whilst away with the US national team. So he's not going to be able to make tonight. Now, the skeptics amongst us might say he's done that because he knew he was going to get some stick from me and Al, but we'll, we'll take him on his word. Um, with that, it's just going to be me and Al tonight. So how are you, pal? You well? Very good, thanks, mate. Very good. Good stuff, good stuff. So there's, we'll dive straight into it because I think that, you know there's only really one place that we can start and that's looking at the, the Liverpool and Arsenal game. Now, there was loads of debate pre-match, not only amongst ourselves, but obviously in the press, in terms of how each of the managers and particularly Arsenal would approach the game. And I think that the main talking point seems to be Emre's tactics. Um, now, we've spoke at length since the game um, I suppose, in terms of the naivety, perhaps, in, in Arsenal's tactics, particularly with the, the diamond in midfield. Were you surprised when you seen the teams and the setups with how Arsenal were going to come at Liverpool? I wasn't surprised so much with the Arsenal team, but when I seen the setup, I, I was kind of like, you know, laughing a little bit, thinking, surely to God they're not going to go with a diamond here. And, mm. you know, when I seen them, I was like, kind of, wow. You know, it's kind of incredible. You know, Liverpool's main source for creativity and chances is the full-backs. And it was like Emery was just kind of the same. Yeah, let them have it. No problem. That's no issue. Yeah, we, we, we spoke, though. I think one thing that surprised me, and I was the same as you, you know, our main main source of or main threat, I would say, is is obviously because of the, the full-backs and their quality from wide areas, particularly in the first half, though. We, we kind of highlighted, I suppose, the, the quality wasn't quite there from wide areas. And yourself as a fullback, sometimes when you've got too much time, can that cause problems in itself? You know, usually, you know, you've got a, you know, you've got somebody pressing you, you get it out your feet, you whip it in. But sometimes when you've got a little bit too much time, you know, you start to overthink things and, and perhaps, uh, you know, give a few balls away. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first three or four balls with the fullbacks put in, you know, particularly Robbo with great balls, low and, you know, just a little bit too far. Uh, for the front men, the front men never got in the end of it. But you're right. I think sometimes when you have that much time, the the, in, the instinct in your game goes because you know where most teams are like we have to stop Liverpool's fullback getting the ball to deliver crosses in the box. Now nine times out of ten they, they couldn't stop that last season. But when Arsenal come and we're just like you're not going to go through the middle of us, we're going to put you that wide. I do think the the, the two fullbacks were kind of thinking you know. Well, the instinct of the game went for me, to be honest with you. I just think they had too much time in the ball and were thinking too much about the balls with the signs of delivered in the box and some of the deliveries were poor, which we haven't said too much about the fullbacks. Yeah, it was it was a strange one because I think, you know, when the, the, the game started, Liverpool started with a with a high tempo and you thought to yourself, Oh, yeah, this is this is gonna kinda be true to form and, and Liverpool are gonna blow them away. But I think it, it became a a time where Liverpool were getting the ball wide and putting balls into the box and and it was nearly like Arsenal were were set up to expect the balls to come in and for large parts with the defending them well. And I think this seemed a period then where Arsenal maybe got a little bit of a foothold and and, and looked impressive through Pepe, who was a, was a standout. Were you impressed with him? I was impressed with him. I wasn't impressed with Arsenal, though, I must be honest. And that's just not me with me Liverpool cap on. That's just me where... I, 
I just kind of expected a little bit more from Arsenal. I thought the only time that he was a threat was just a big long punt over the top for Pepe, who, who he does look a live threat, by the way. Um, but I mean, if I think it was, his, I might be on the right in saying that it was Pepe's first start of the season for Arsenal. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, I think if you took him out of that lineup there, I mean, Abamyang, who I'm a big fan of, I mean, he was absolutely anonymous. Mm. You know, he was non-existent, and I just thought. They've come, I just I didn't understand the um, the game plan of the manager. Now, he's a manager who I kind of liked, and I think I thought he was always going to be good. And I think he actually mentioned in the podcast last year, I did think when he come in that Arsenal will finish top four, because I do like him. I like what he's doing to Ville. But I just thought his game plan, when he come in with the diamonds and just kind of long balls over the top, try and cancel Liverpool and hit Pep on the break. I just kind of expected a little bit more from Arsenal, me to be honest. But do you know? And I, I try to look at this, you know, objectively because we, obviously we do the podcast, and, and I try to to not let my heart heart lead me too much and, and be totally pro Liverpool. So I was looking at the game, and I was thinking, as an Arsenal team, or as any visiting team, you know, Liverpool's home record is so uh, so impressive now over uh, over recent seasons. How, what is the way home? against Liverpool, Al? Because, you know, I, I I thought the same as you. I thought Arsenal looked dangerous when they nearly missed the midfield, moved the ball quickly and directly and tried to get Pe- uh, Pepe in, in 1v1 situations where he looked a threat. But, you know, Liverpool seem so well coached and so well drilled. And one thing that stands out to me with Liverpool is their game smarts. It's nearly like they take their time sometimes to work out the opposition and then, you know, sooner rather than later, they have you sussed and, and then they'll start to pick you off. As a visiting team, what do you think is the, the way home against Liverpool? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, I look at the Liverpool team, you know, of, you know, you can think, you can think the future out of the equation at the minute, but when Liverpool have got the full fit five and 11, I don't think there's a weakness. For me, at the moment, there's not a weakness in this Liverpool team uh, in the in the strongest eleven. Um, and as you say, there's a newfound uh, patience in, in them. You know, going back to if you look at two years ago when we were striving to be where we are now, I feel, you always felt there was a little bit of unrest. If you didn't score early goals in the 30th minute, you know, it's kind of a little bit of, oh, you know, are we gonna are we going to score? Are we going to get picked off? Now there's just this newfound confidence and growth where Liverpool will keep the ball and they keep moving you. Um, and they'll keep, you know, making making the opposition chase the ball and known for a fact that the, the opposition are going to tire and are going to make that one mistake. And as soon as they make that mistake, that's when Liverpool punish you. Um, and this, this is the this is the finest Liverpool team of my lifetime. And I don't want to get too carried away because we all know that Manchester City are absolutely phenomenal. And I do think we're in for another key battle and, you know, for their league title this season. But this is a different Liverpool team. This is a different Liverpool team than when we had like the Brendan Rodgers when we looked superb. There's just a new fans, you know, concentration and level where you kind of like, they know the opposition can't contain this team for 90 minutes of a game. There will be one slip up, one mistake. They will pull you out of position once and like bang. That's what well, this, this is one thing that me and you speak about at length and that's you know, becoming more evident with every passing week now is Klopp's ability to make tweaks at half time. Now, I think Liverpool, you know, for some parts of the first half, 
we say it, you say exposed. I mean, Arsenal caused us a threat, and in particular, you know, Pepe caused us a threat through his, his sheer pace. Now, I don't, you know, there was the one glaring miss uh, from Pepe, which you know, I'd say probably eight times out of ten he probably finishes. But other than that, you know, I, I think they caused us some problems. I don't think it was anything, you know, to to rip up trees about. But I had full confidence that when Jurgen Klopp gets them in the dressing room at half time. He's he's had a good read of that team for 45 minutes and he can make some subtle adjustments. And I'm always confident coming out for the second half that it will be an improved Liverpool. And and I think for 15 minutes of the of the second half, that was as, as strong as I've seen Liverpool in a long time. And, and I think I texted you lads at the time and said, Liverpool are like a vice in that they're just constantly getting tighter and tighter and suffocating teams until eventually, bang, bang. There's a couple of goals, um, and and it just yeah. that's one thing that stood out. And I, I think as an opposition player, you know, you come into you come into Anfield, you don't get time on the ball. Um, you know, you've seen the new lad for Arsenal that's come from Madrid, uh, Caballos. He he looked like a fish out of water, and he's a fantastically gifted technical footballer. But I think at one part he looked like a schoolboy just hashing the ball in any direction to to, to try and make a pass. Well, yeah, this is the thing, Jamie. I mean, this, this is what I mean about the new this Liverpool team for me is is the best I've seen the lights in because you've hit the nail on the head there. Liverpool, listen, I thought for the first, the opening 15 minutes, I thought Liverpool are going to absolutely steamroll these. And then, as you say, we've got a manager, not just a manager, but we've got a manager and the players who can actually take on these instructions and deliver what the manager's asking. And for the 15 minutes after half time, I mean, it was like, wow. You kind of like, it's just as if he's come out and just said, right, listen, we're not playing games now. We're going to put you to sleep. Um, then we just took the foot off the gas for the last 15, 20 minutes for me. And, that's, and, and this is the thing that I want to come on to next, right? Because I tweeted about it at the time. And I, look, Gary Neville and, and, and Martin Tyler, I would say, are not fans of Liverpool. I think it's safe to say. But usually, you know, being the professionals that they are, they're able to, to hide their bias perhaps towards other teams. But it seems with every passing week, they seem to be getting worse. And I'm not one of these fans that likes to jump on bandwagons and, oh, it's an outrage, it's anti-Liverpool. I, you know, for large parts, I don't think it is. But it really stood out to me at, uh, at the weekend. And it actually got to the point where I had to mute the TV. It was like Neville in particular was giving Arsenal so much praise and trying to create what it seemed to me, a narrative that Liverpool were showing moments of weakness, that there's a chink in the armoury, you know, and not really giving Liverpool that much credit. Did you pick up on that or is that just me being oversensitive? No, I I think I texted us in the group. I thought thought the two of them were completely utterly embarrassing. I really did. Now, I'm a big fan of Gary Neville. And Martin Tyler, I can't stand. He's just, it's like, is he a Man United fan? Yeah, I think so. It's like, you know, he's just... When Mo Salah scored that goal, his commentary was like, oh, yeah. yeah he wasn't goal. asked, was he? Wait a minute. It's an unbelievable goal. Yeah. But Neville, Neville was driving me insane. It yeah. was like, Peppers, is, you know, I've never seen Van... i never seen Van Dyke flustered at all. Well, this is, this, is my, this is my other thing. This is my other thing that's pissing me off at the moment, right? It's this Van Dyke stat. And the two things can hand, go hand in hand, right? So everyone is clambering for, for Van Dyke to be dribbled past. And it looks now like they're saying that Pepe did dri- dribble past him. I don't think in that instance 
He did. I think he just outpaced him for the second. Van Dijk stood off. He didn't get past him. But anyway, that's a side issue. But the way that Gary Neville was going on, you'd have thought that he repeatedly megged him, done somersaults, turned him inside and out, and then took him back the other way. It was bizarre. Yeah, that's that's the thing as well. And you know, this this Van Dijk dribble. Listen, I played full back the majority of my career. And I can set the record straight. Pep never dribbled past Van Dyke on that occasion. That that's just a fact. How can someone knock the ball over the top? You've got an extra yard advantage, but then the defender gets there and nothing happens. You just mm. play the ball back. How's he dribble past them? Do you know what though? I, I wish he did. Like I genuinely, I hope they do class it because I just want I want the stat to go away because it seems like you know and. and, and for Man United mate to listen, I apologise if this is if it's too Liverpool heavy. But the one thing Liverpool seems to be setting a different type of benchmark at the moment. So you look at the likes of Van Dijk. The new thing for fans to cheer is that somebody dribbles past him. Yeah. Now, for me and you as a player, centre backs get dribbled past two, three times a game. Yeah. Like that's not that's not that that's not anything to write home about. It happens. You're playing against world class players. Yeah. It's how you recover from them getting past you or how many times it happens. Whereas now the, you know, the benchmark seems to be, you know, teams are just celebrating getting past Van Dyke. And I've seen a lot of stuff from Arsenal fans celebrating that they scored against Liverpool and Neville and Tyler again, were making a big thing of the fact that Arsenal scored, you know yourself, Al, if you're three nil up and you're coasting, you, sometimes you take your foot off the gas and they get a consolation goal. That happens, doesn't it? Surely it's not something to worry about. No, mate, there's nothing to worry about. I mean, Liverpool could have scored five, six, seven goals if they wanted to. Liverpool took the gas off, made three changes at 70 minutes and the tempo slightly dropped into and that's it. But the game is over. But I do think you bang on about this fans, I think, you know, the, the man's an absolute freak. He's a freak. He's the best defender in, in the world. There's no even debate about that. And that's not me coming from me as a Liverpool fan. That's coming from me as an ex-defender. The man is the best defender in the world by a, a phenomenal distance. And, you know, you're going back to Gary Neville. Gary, I was astounded listening to him thinking, am I watching a different game here? Because Van Dijk's not flustered, he's not lost the header, he's not lost the tackle. Someone's run a yard in front of him, he's got back and he never went past him, he played the ball back. And all that you got from Gary Neville is, I've never seen Van Dijk so flustered and so standoffish. But you know the funny thing was, Al, right? So let's compare the opposing centre-backs on the day, right? So, and you'll know yourself from playing, if I have somebody with pace, you have an option to either get touch tight so you don't want them to get the turn, but you you run the risk, as you've seen with David Luiz, of being turned. So he tried to get tight to Salah, ball come into feet, Salah, little jinkies away, and that's it, you're out of the game. Van Dijk chose the other option. He went, right, okay, I'm going to stand off. I'm going to, and I'm going to see if he can beat me. If he wants to knock it past me, then I've got a yard and I can, and, and you know, I, I think Van Dijk is like shit off a shovel. There's a good chance that he'd be able to match him. So, you know, I, I think it was by design that Van Dyke went, you know what? I'm not going to get too close that he rolls me. I'm going to stand off. I'm going to make him stand me up and see what he's got. Surely, as a defender, Neville should be looking at that as opposed to clambering for some type of weakness in his game. I just I, I couldn't make sense of it. I don't know whether the thing about Harry Maguire and this new fee and everything has actually gotten to Neville's head. Because as I say, I'm a big fan of Neville. I do like him. And I, I sometimes I listen to him and think, do you know what? He, he's he's brilliant at what he does. But Saturday, I was I was close to turning the, the, the sounds off. I never, but I was close to turning it off because I was like, you're just talking utter nonsense. You know, you're saying oh, you've never seen Van Dyke flustered. 
Well, I watched the game and I, I don't remember seeing Van Dyke thrusting at any stage in that game whatsoever. You know, as you say, if you're coming up against someone pace, when you drop off and you stand off them and you go, okay, well, you're quick, but you're going to have to beat me with skill. Now, yeah. although Pepe was a threat during the game, I mean, let's get it right, his only chance really was from a Jordan Henderson misplaced pass. Yeah. So that was, you know, for someone who supposedly rinsed us, he only had one chance and one shot on target where Henderson shanked the ball and put him clean through. Well, the, the, there's there's one thing that I, I want to finish on with the with the Liverpool game before before we move on, and that I, I, I tweeted it today actually because I seen a stat uh, which surprised me, and that that's Mo Salah. Now Mo Salah is as of today. He's the, the leading goal scorer in terms of goals per minute in Premier League history. Now, wow. the, the the goal that he scored, uh, the goal that he scored was was absolutely unbelievable. I'll be honest. I actually stood up in in the house and, and give him a round of applause. It was that good. Um, the, the the thing I want to want to say is, I still can't help but feel that he is underrated. I don't I don't know what it is. But his form since he came to the Premier League, came back to the Premier League, has been nothing short of magnificent. And now, statistically, he is ranked the best in terms of uh, minutes and, and, and goals per minute. Do you think that there is an element that he's perhaps underrated by whether it's opposition fans or, or the media? I don't think he gets the, the actual credit, what he should do. I mean, I, I think I tweeted, didn't I send you a WhatsApp about it was 77 games? Oh, something he was in, involved in 77 goals in 70 games or something for Liverpool around them because I can't think the exact figure. Yeah. Um, I don't think he gets the recognition what he actually deserves. Um, and I just think the media, I think the media and the opposition are still waiting for him to have a, bat, a real barren patch. I think that's the feeling I get. I kind of think they, yeah. you know, they're waiting for him to go on a six, eight, or ten game run where he doesn't score and then he can go well you know we knew it but this is now the third season isn't it it's the third season and he's continuing mm. to do what he does and I think he's looking better so far this season than what he has the last the previous two seasons yeah I'd agree and I, and I think we spoke about it last week didn't we you know when you particularly you factor in the lack of pre-season yeah. that he's had you know he came back was his first game back to Charity Shield or was he back yeah. no yeah, so he's he's hardly had any minutes, and he's come back. And you know, you know from playing yourself, some some days you have a, a game where you're doing the warm up, and someone drills one in it, yeah, and your touch is perfect, and you go, you know what, I'm on it today. Yeah, he yeah. he just seemed from that moment on. I think I remember him getting the ball early in the charity shield, and he and he ran it. Um, uh, City's left back, and 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 I, and I just thought to myself. He's at it here. And it's the same with Firmino. Firmino has been nothing short of fantastic. And he's another one. Usually he comes back looking like he's been uh, lacing into the, the all-inclusive. But he, he's he's come back and he looks in, in flying form. And I just think when you compare Salah now to the likes of, let's say, you know, who's, who's his nearest competitor? You'd say it'd be Harry Kane in terms of numbers. Um, the, the press seem to give Kane... There's a totally different narrative around Harry Kane. Whereas yeah. Mo Salah consistently scores, consistently assists, works hard, keeps his head down. There's no real scandal with Mo Salah anymore. Yet, just doesn't, just seems to go a little bit under the radar. Yeah, I agree with you. Just, just on the, the, the pre-season thing, I think this season, it was a kind of a worry for me. Uh, 
when I thought that none of them, I mean, they have had a, a small break, but the, I think what we're going to benefit from early on in the season is, you know yourself, is that when, when you've had like a six or eight period, you do lose your rhythm. You lose your rhythm into the games and then you get your rhythm and you get your, you know, things seem to click and then stuff comes natural because you, you're playing week in, week out, game in, game, sometimes two, three games a week. And I do think we're benefiting from our front three is that the rhythm's still there. They're still, they're still in the rhythm of the game. I thought for me, you know, once against Arsenal, some of the stuff what he produced. Yeah, just it shows the it shows the confidence that the lads have. You know, the the scoop. I have seen a debate happening on Twitter today around him showboating, and yeah, there, there was an easier pass on to Andy Robinson. But I'm sorry, that's the stuff that you paid the admission fee for. You want to you want to you know you think back to the players like I don't know JJ Akocha. There's a blast from the past. You know, he used to do things on a football with a football that he didn't think were possible, and that's what you want to pay the admission fees for. And I think. You know, as a footballer, when you're full of confidence, I want to see my players express themselves. And it's it, it just watching that front three at the moment. Uh, I just, it, honestly, it is, a, it is, and I just think as a as a fan, I don't think I've enjoyed watching it the the team more, and it makes it even more pleasing that we're built on solid foundations. So I think we can both say before we move on, you know, long may it continue. Um, I think. So, so what I want to move on to now, right? So it's probably opposite end of the scale, I guess, is when you look at Tottenham. So Tottenham had a, what would be on paper, perhaps a route, considered a routine victory, you would think, given the current plight of, of Newcastle. But when you look at Spurs, and again, I was doing a little bit of research today, and I was surprised that Spurs now, off the back of that uh, defeat, have not won an away game since January. And I've only won four in the last 15 games. Now, I suppose the first question is, are they perhaps going a little bit stale? You know, they had no new faces come in in the, or the, the very limited new faces come in. You've got Ericsson perhaps pushing for a move. Do you think they're going a little bit stale, perhaps even backwards? Well, you know, I told you, you say they've had no new faces. They've spent over £100 million. They signed a sentiment here from Leon, who's... By all accounts, a superb player. They got the the Argentinian sentiment for what they paid sixty million for, and they signed the young lad from uh, Fulham. But they'd lost it. The likes of Dembele and uh, what's his, uh, what's the other guy? The guy for uh, Wanyama. He's uh, supposedly off as well. So you could argue that it's not that they're retaining players and building from a position of strength. They're perhaps replacing players. You know, I think that's one thing. Not to go back to Liverpool, but. You know the club should be praised for is they've retained all their talent, and I think that's that's yeah. half the battle. Whereas Spurs have lost a few players, they've got arguably their most creative player pushing for a move. So the signs aren't all positive, if you know what I mean. I was half worried when I was seeing Spurs doing a bit of business in the summer because I just I looked at Spurs and I thought, and I think we spoke about this on the podcast, mate. They they were away at Burnley last season, and if they beat Burnley away at Turf Moor. They'd have gone a point behind Liverpool in the league and they got beat. They got beat at Turf Moor and then they just went on this horrendous run and finished obscene amount of points behind us. So I just was, in the back of my mind, I was kind of like, I don't see that happening to Spurs again next season. But then, you know, there just seems to be a little bit of unrest there. The warning signs for me were pre-season when Potichino was coming out. I think he was on tour in America, maybe. I might be wrong there, but I think it was. And he was coming out and he was saying, well, I don't sign any place. I just coach. I'm not the manager, I'm the coach. 
And I thought, that's a bit of a strange comment, that. Yeah, I think that was around, supposedly, obviously wanted the club to push for Dybala. I think he, the club were in for yeah. Coutinho and he, he wanted them to, to back him. And potentially, you know, that was a bit of a power play to try and make them do some business. But yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I think the, the noises that he's making does not sound like a manager that's perhaps there for, for the long term. And there's definitely some frustration. And I think... You can see it on the pitch now. I mean, I was watching the game and Newcastle defended well. Look, it was yeah. you know it was pretty much one way traffic, but it was it was play with no penetration. And you know when you used to have it in train and you'd you'd set up attack versus defence. Yeah, you know, and you can have it some days where they could be playing till the cows come home. They weren't going to score, and it just looked like for large parts Newcastle were were pretty solid and I just I was surprised because I, I fancied Spurs to to kind of kick on yeah. uh to, you know off the back of a, a good Champions League run. But what it actually looks like is that Champions League run has probably masked some of the problems that they face. Yeah, I mean I, I well, as I say, I'm like you like yourself I watched the game and I just felt there was that kind of there was no atmosphere, nothing on the the new stadium looks unreal and there kind of wasn't no atmosphere and there was like there didn't seem no urgency in Spurs playing. You look at the squad and you're thinking, you know, you you really top top draw senior players like, um, I mean, how's Ericsson not playing in that team? Mm. You know, okay, he's out of contact, but well, if you want to keep him and you want to progress, give him what he's after. Yeah. Give him a new contract. And Vertonghen was out the team last week because something to do with a contact or something else. Well, sort your issues internally, and you know, try and grow and get stronger. From a from a playing perspective, Al, you know, you've been in many a dressing room. What type of impact does it have when I assume you've probably been in teams where you know the club have brought in lots of players over the summer, maybe dressing rooms where there hasn't been uh, players coming in. What type of impact does that have on the existing playing staff when you have players coming in? Well, when you have players coming in, you know, you obviously you're always concentrating on your, your position and you don't want you know. No one, no player wants a player to come in in his position. But then when, you know, with the, the other players, like the senior players, like Harry Kane and, you know, the likes in Delhi Alley and all that, they must be looking and thinking, you know, what, why is Ericsson not playing? Harry Kane's, 50-60% of his goals must come through an Ericsson ball or something what Ericsson's doing in the game where he, you know, we play a ball out wide. Harry Kane must be sitting there as a goal scorer thinking, my main source of chances and created is sat on the bench. And I just think that, I don't know, there just seems, mm. there just seems a bit of a cloud over Spurs at the minute. I mean, you know, they're all, they've already dropped four, what have they dropped now? They've dropped five points in three games. Mm. Albeit one against City, but yeah, I think the, the the Newcastle game was was one that they definitely fancy winning. And, and one thing that happened towards perhaps the end of the game. Now, we we agreed before the podcast, we, we've got to try and stay away from VAR rants where possible, because I think it's going to become the VAR podcast if, if we're not yeah. careful. But unfortunately, there was a, another incident in a couple of the games. We won't go into those in detail, but one thing I do want to get your, your opinion on, because I put a post out on the Twitter account today asking, did people feel that it was a penalty on Kane? And from the responses, it was mixed. I'll be honest. Some people said it was a clear penalty. Some people said it, it's it, it's a penalty, but it, it, it's a soft one. Other people said they didn't think it was a penalty. So from, without going into the VARS aspect, did you think it was a penalty on the on the footage that you saw? No, I don't. 
Harry Kane's very clever on very very clever on it, and I think he's 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 thought the defender was there, and I think he's tried to. He thought the defender was going to be there till he fell over, and I think he's trying to use his body to kind of lean on the defender to get the shot off. And when the defender's not there, he's gone over. It wasn't a penalty for me. That do you think? Because that leads me on to my next question. And my personal opinion on this is: I thought, with the benefit of the video, I thought it was a soft penalty. I've seen them given. Yeah. On balance, I'd probably say it should have been a pen. But what I would caveat that with is. Harry Kane absolutely played for it. And I think that is what has gone against him in that. And you know it yourself, it's when you're playing sometimes and you, you've, let's say you're running at somebody, you know, if you knock it across them and you run across them, there's a good chance naturally that your legs will tangle and you can go down. So you're yeah. instigating contact and you can fall down. Yeah. I think Harry Kane knows that the defender's coming across him. I think he started to position himself and maybe even fall without contact in the view of initiating the contact and make it look like a penalty. Now, I think that's what's worked against him because his movement didn't look as a natural consequence of contact. It looked like he was trying to buy the contact and perhaps that's probably what's created the uncertainty and maybe why he's not been given the penalty. Yeah, I think that you've hit the nail in the head and that's, that's the main reason why I don't think it was a penalty because he's looking to initiate the contact, but the contact wasn't there. And I think he's just kind of fell over because there's nothing there for him to lean on or to, you know, to, if you get, it's quite difficult to explain. What I think he's trying to do, Jamie, he's trying to feel for the defender. And as soon as he's feeling for the defender, he's going down. But the defender wasn't there. And because he's got nothing to lean on, I think that's what's in the help, helped him tumble. And that's the reason why it wasn't a penalty for me. I think if the uh, defender would have stayed on his feet, I do think that Harry Kane would have got in front of him. And it would have looked like the defender was kind of on his back, if you know what I mean, and he goes down and it's a penalty. But because the contact wasn't there for him to lean on, to use the defender's body for him to initiate the contact, I just think he kind of looked a little bit silly, if I'm being honest. He kind of fell over nothing in the end. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, and I think this one, perhaps for, for VAR, now I, I'm not 100% sure on how it works, but I assume it would be if there's not a, a conclusive decision if not, if everybody isn't a because we promised we wouldn't, we wouldn't. <laughs> okay, okay, we we won't we won't get into it. But what, what I would I say, say, come on, <laughs> no, go on, you go. What I will say is this is why VAR needs binning because <laughs> they're looking at the screen and they still couldn't make a decision on it because it's yeah. human error. Yeah. So leave it to the man on the pitch. Leave it to the you said it, yeah. You said it last week, and we, I, I promise we won't go down into it. But you said it's just, it's more people's opinions. Exactly. And this, look at the, the all right, it's a, a very small sample size, but look at the response we got off, uh, off Twitter when asking different people's opinions. There wasn't a unified view, everybody had a different opinion. And if, le unless you are 100% conclusive, you cannot give that penalty, which is what happened. So it's, uh, look, we're not going to go down that route. But there you go, and that's, that's, that's our point, isn't it? Because here's me and you, two lads, talking about football, watched it on the screen, backwards and forwards. You think it possibly a pen. I think it wasn't a pen. So imagine me and you in the VAR office. How long will <laughs> yeah, we take? Yeah. Well, you'd have, you'd have smashed the VAR up before we'd, before we'd have even been able to use it. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think before we dive into VAR, I'm going to move subtly on, and I'm going to move on to, to Manchester United now. It's it's a strange one with Manchester United because obviously they're as a Liverpool fan they're they're our biggest rivals. Now I have to be honest, 
as I say most weeks, I've, I've got some some good mates who are Man United fans, knowledgeable fans. And look, I want Liverpool to be better than Manchester United. I want Liverpool to to beat Manchester United whenever they play them, come above them. I see, I enjoy it when Manchester United, uh, you know, lose big games. I think the league benefits from Manchester United being strong. I have to say that as long as Liverpool are better. I think the league benefits from Manchester United being strong. But one thing, whenever I see them play um, and and you hear the noises around the club, it just seems to me like that fear factor that they'd spent how many years building up has gone. And and you as a player that's gone to Old Trafford, I mean, you spoke about run-ins with Roy Keane. You know, that... It's, tell us a little bit about, I suppose, when you were a player, maybe the, the fear factor going into those games and maybe what, you know, by contrast, what is it like now? Well, look, look at the look at the Manchester United team that I had to face. I mean, you know, we got beat 8-1 by them at Forest. I scored a goal. I equalised and then they, it upset them. You look at that team, <laughs> what they, they had back then, they had Schmeichel, an absolute man of men. Wow. You had... <laughs> I think it was Dennis Irwin left back, Gary Neville right back, Yapstan, Rio Ferdinand, you had David Beckham, Roy Keane, Nicky Bull, Paul Scholes, Cole and York. This Man United team is absolutely a hundred million miles away from that, you know, that setup. A hundred miles, like, you know, go through Man United's team. You know, you go through Manchester United's team now, you know, They've, they've spent obscene... I think Man United's biggest problem is the big contracts that they've been given out. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot of internal bitterness and backbiting. You know, Rashford... I like Rashford. Rashford is a, I think he's a very, very good player. Rashford will not score you more than 15 goals a season. No chance. Well, here's one for you, Al. I, again, I was doing a bit of research today, right? And I was looking at the players in the league that have the highest salaries, Right. Uh, highest salaries and within the top 10 highest earning footballers in the Premier League Manchester United have number one David De Gea number two uh, Alexis Sanchez number five Paul Pogba number six Anthony Martial and number 10 Marcus Rashford so they have all of those players earn an obscene amount of money And and I think for Manchester United I think it's a couple of things I think one I agree with you wholeheartedly I think they've thrown Big amounts of money around. And I think the thing that sent them down a dodgy path was the was the Sanchez deal. It it yep. set the bar that high that as a player, and I, th- I think di- as a direct consequence of what he was getting paid and the performances he was putting in on the pitch, Marcus Rashford felt that he was able to turn around and say, well, hold on a second. That guy over there has played four games and scored one goal in best part of two years or whatever it was. You're telling me that I'm a a key player, a young player, my career ahead of me. I expect to be earning X amount. And because Manchester United are in a difficult situation at the moment, they can't be seen to be losing their top talent. They're kind of over a barrel a little bit, so they've had to reward Rashford. Now, the other thing that I think with Manchester United, it's, it's not so much the players on the pitch. It's the disjointed strategy off the pitch. So it seems very scattergun in who they sign. I've said Harry Maguire, I think, is a, is a fantastic player. I do rate him. I've always rated him. I, and that opinion hasn't changed. I think of the available options, it was probably himself. I'd say Koulibaly, perhaps, from, from Napoli. That would have been the standouts that they could have potentially got. Uh, other than that, I think they didn't address a key area, which was central midfield. And I think yeah. that Manchester United have a lack of leaders. 
genuine leaders that are going to set the standards week in, week out, that are consistently going to give you eight out of 10 performances, that are going to be prepared to stand up and give the other players a bollock. And it just seems, it just seems a very disjointed club at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I think Manchester United in a... Uh... A lot of de- they're in decline. They're in decline. There's no two ways about it. I don't think Man United are finishing the top six this season. I genuinely don't. I think you you know you look at Chelsea. Frank Lampard's got a tough job on at Chelsea, but I do think they've got better players. They've got more creative players. They've got young, hungry players as well. Um, I think Tammy Abraham has scored more goals than Marcus Rashford this season, and Rashford's just signed a new two hundred supposedly two hundred and seventy two hundred eighty grand a week contract. I just think when I look at when I look at this Manchester, well, let's put it this way: you've just you just said that Man United's got five or six of the top paid players in the Premier League. Not one of them I would swap for a Liverpool player in our starting eleven. Not one, and I don't think Man City would neither. Yeah, there was. See, I think this is the thing. There was something on. I think it was on BBC, uh, one of the BBC podcasts that was talking about Manchester United players potentially getting into to Liverpool or City's, well, they said squad. I, I think, I think when you look at Man United, I would say, I would take Harry, look, if you're giving, if you're giving me Harry Maguire, I'd take him. If, uh, you know, this is squad now, not getting into the side, but I, I'd definitely take him. Uh, I like Juan Basaka. Oh, let, let's, let's, let's concentrate on the 11 now, because as a squad, you know, you could have a squad of 30. But if you focus on the starting eleven, hands on heart, Jamie, which Man United player would you take and say he makes our eleven better? Right, you're gonna you're gonna hate me for this, right? Please don't say Pogba because oh, oh. I'm gonna have to disconnect. <laughs> now, now, I'll, before I say, I, I think Pogba has incredible technical ability. I think if you build a team around Paul Pogba, he can excel. Do I think Paul Pogba has more technical ability than some of Liverpool's starting centre midfielders? Absolutely. I do think that. But he is not built for a Liverpool team. So so for for that, I wouldn't put him in, but he would be the closest. Is there other Manchester United players that I think would do well at Liverpool? I think Marcus Rashford would be fantastic at Liverpool. I think Anthony Martial would be fantastic at Liverpool. I like the both of them. Bright, aggressive can you imagine those under the likes of a Klopp? I think I think they would excel. But if you're looking at what Liverpool have built, they, I, I wouldn't take any Manchester United players. I would say Wan-Bissaka defensively is better than Trent, but our team is built around attacking football and Trent is one of our best assets. So, you know, it's one of those. It, it's what do you want from a player? But personally, balance-wise, no, I, I wouldn't put anybody in our starting eleven. But I do think Manchester United have, have talented players. But it, at this moment in time, I, I would look at the disjointed strategy upstairs and I would look at the manager. I just, I, I said that at the time, the, the worst thing that happened to Manchester United was that Solskjaer, when he first came in, got the yeah. new manager bounce and got a load of, of good results. And fair play to them, they put in a good run of results. But literally, mate, as soon as that new contract or that contract was put in front of him, the performances fell off a cliff. Well, I, I, I've, I've spoke to you quite a few times about and I'll name him now because he, listen, he listens to this podcast all the time. A good mate of mine, Ben Mangan, great coach, great lad. We're close with uh, a lot of the Man United players privately in the, in the summer as well. 
the kid knows his stuff. He's top, top draw. He's a big United fan. Sometimes he wears his United goggles when we speak daily on the WhatsApp group. Um, We're guilty of that, though, with Liverpool, mate. Right, so we, <laughs> we are. We really are. The problem, the problem for me, what Man United, what Man United has got, is because they are a super club. They are, you know, they are this global phenomenon. They've used this scattergun approach where we're bigger and richer than everyone and anyone, but they've used it in the complete and utter wrong way. And I do think that this guy Woodward has got he, before Man United move making the small steps to get anywhere near the where they have to be or they used to be. They have to get shut of him. Because he's given three, four hundred thousand pounds a week contract out. Like they're just going out of fashion. Now before before Liverpool's front three signed new deals, Alexis Sanchez was on more money than the three of them put together. Now let that sink in a minute. It's phenomenal. Alexis Sanchez was taking five hundred grand a week, and that was more than our front three before we signed new deals was taking home on a weekly basis. Now, the worst thing, and we spoke about this in detail, and I think we've actually mentioned this on a previous podcast, Jamie, was when Solskjaer come in, the timing to sack Mourinho was absolutely perfect, and the timing to give Solskjaer the new job was absolutely perfect because Man United's run of games at that time, I think they played uh, 12 of the bottom 12 in the in the 12 games, what Solskjaer actually... I think he won 13 in the bounce, I might be right in saying... Yeah, I think, actually, I think the only one of note, now this is going back and with the lack of sleep that the kids now give me, I'm not, I've not got the best memory, but I'm nearly sure that I think they had one, I think they played Spurs and Arsenal though, as well. I, yeah. I think that, yeah. and I think that was the, they, those were the results where I think every, because it was always labelled at Solskjaer, yeah, but how would he do against the top side? How would yeah. he do it? And I think to be fair to him, I think they got, got a couple of good results to get. Well, actually, no, if you remember the Spurs game. He got absolutely mullered. Yeah, David De Gea was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And De Gea saved, De Gea was like an octopus in goal. So, yeah, I I do remember that. Another couple of results. Listen, I I get that. The biggest mistake they'd done was give give him the deal before the end of the season because... They've, I think I read somewhere today. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that they've won four Premier League games in 16 games. Now, mm. as a Man United manager, that can't happen. You can't win four in 16. You know, if you're a Watford manager or you're a Bournemouth manager or Chef United or Norwich, well then, yeah, because you're in a fight, you're in the scrap. It's Man United who outspend everyone on a regular basis, whose budget's bigger than anybody's in world football. Now, you can't you can't win four games in sixteen as a Man United manager. Well, let me put you on the spot, right? So, do you think first first question? Do you think that Solskjaer lasts the season? Is the first question, and then the second part of that question is who replaces him if 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 you do think he gets the bullet? Man United will be managed by Pochettino before the end of the season. Yeah, I, I've got a sneak, sneaking feeling with the with the way that the, the, the trajectory of both clubs. I I think Pochettino. Was was the right man, and I said at the start of the season, I was like, I hope they don't. I, you know, when all this was going on, I was like, I hope he doesn't yeah. go to them because I think he's tailor made for them. I think he plays football in the right way. He's about promoting youth. He's about getting the ball wide, being aggressive. He stands for everything that Manchester United that I've known growing up. You know, you think back to to what Fergie built. You know, the way that he wanted the football to be played. Pochettino is culturally. The most perfect fit that they could have found, you know, that they could find. 
The fact that Spurs, as we said before, probably are going a little bit stale. He seems a little bit frustrated for whatever reason. You know, it, with with everything that had kind of gone on for, for over the summer, you know, United kind of were backed into a corner and giving Solskjaer the deal. Uh, you know, Real Madrid had brought back Zinedine Zidane. You know, the opportunity, the two real opportunities for Pochettino had gone. So he, I, I feel like he stayed at Spurs. It just feels like something is changing. Uh, and I think yeah. Manchester United are in a difficult situation now because they don't want to be known as, you know, the new Real Madrid who sacking managers left, right and centre. So I do think there's going to be an element where Oli will probably get more time than perhaps previous managers would have. But there's going to become a point. Manchester United can't afford to be missing out on top four and not competing for major trophies. They're, they're arguably the biggest club in the world. They need to get the next appointment right. And I suppose the question is, how long do you think they wait before potentially changing if things don't improve? But look, it's like Liverpool. I mean, Liverpool is also a huge club, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And look out, look at the look at the decline that we've had. I mean, you take take the crop and the you know the Brendan Rodgers was you know the, the football he played was outstanding. Before that, I mean, yeah, we went through some shite. Yeah, we went through some shite. The Roy Hodgson days were horrific. Hodgson, I mean, Jesus, Christian Paulson, the main sign of the summer. Oh my <laughs> God! You know, look how bad we had it. And it's okay saying that Man United are the biggest and the Disney got that amount of money, but he's not done a great deal with the amount of money what they've got in the last three or four years. I mean, let's not forget. And this is quote-unquote, you know, a lot of people were telling me, Man United fans, and all over Twitter and social media, that Fabinho was one of the worst signs that Liverpool could ever make because Man United have got the absolutely creme de la creme in Fred. Yeah. I mean, Fred, where's he now? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a weird one how these things turn out because I, I believe that City were after Fred as well, you know, and I, I, I've seen... I think that was Fred the Weatherman, though. <laughs> Maybe, mate, because I haven't seen much from him that would make me think he'd want to build a team around him. And that's the that's no. the wild thing is Man United need centre midfielders. Yeah. Yeah, why have they not... You know, I, I, you could probably say from the rumours that were going around. I think they've tried to get in uh, Bruno Fernandes, I think was was a, a legitimate option. I think they've gone all out for Dybala, who, who has obviously turned them down. So they've it's probably put them in a difficult situation in that they're having to overpay for talent. And maybe those deals were just difficult to get over the line. There's no way anyone within their right mind looks at their midfield options and goes, no, we're good. We're set for the season. You can't. But even going further than that, I mean, I, as I said, the lad, my mate Ben, who's the, uh, who's the Man United fan, I actually walked up to him and just said, he was like, huge you get? I said, well, you've left yourself massively short up front. Man United's got a huge problem, I think, in scoring goals. I really do. I mean, it's okay given Lukaku stick. Lukaku's a goal scorer. He's proved since the age of 17 till the age of whatever he is now, 26, he is an absolute out-and-out -out goal scorer. His overall play might be great. He scored goals at Chelsea, goals at West Brom, goals at Everton, and he scored goals for Manchester United. He's the only one in that Man United team, for me, the front man, who could get you to 20 goals a season in the league. There was, there's no other player at Man United who can do that. Lukaku can. So now they've lost Lukaku. And I just said to my mate Ben, I went, you're Man United. And he just went, but there's no one out there. I went, just go and say to Tottenham, we want Harry Kane, it's 200 million. Hmm. You're Man United. You're giving out £500,000 a week contracts to Alexis Sanchez. So you, you, not as if you're short on money. No, no, I agree. But then again, playing devil's advocates, are they, are they seen as the same 
uh, attra- with the same attraction now to, to the likes of a Harry Kane. Harry Kane, you would say his, you know, he wants to win major trophies. He's an elite, elite striker. And, he, yeah. you know, he's reaching that time of his career where he deserves to be competing for the biggest trophies and winning medals, you know, season on season. If Manchester United come to Harry Kane at the moment and say, there you go, there's 300 grand a week. Do you think that that's a, a move that he would now make in thinking, you know, if he's thinking from a competitive standpoint, he wants to win medals. Do you think they're going to win them anytime soon? Well, they have to, you know, we're talking about Man United and I do think Donald declined, but they've won a lot of trophies the last four or five years still, you know. Mm. They have won a lot of trophies the last four or five years still. And if you're looking at Harry Kane, now Harry Kane must be looking at what's going on at Tottenham. He must, listen, we're sat here on a podcast saying there's just something not quite right at Tottenham. He's in the changing room. He'll know there's something not right. Yeah. He'll know the likes of when Yama's going in there, Dembele's gone, and Ericsson's not getting a new contract, and Alderwood has not signed a new deal, and Vertonghen's being left out. So we must, if that's me, I'm going, but these are serious, serious players who's leaving the club or are not getting new deals. Now, Man United, I think they've won five trophies in the last six or seven years, or whatever it is. They're still winning trophies. Mm. So if you're, if I'm a Man United, if I'm Miss Edwards, I'm going to Harry Kane, it's Tottenham, it's 200 million, Harry Kane, we want you. You are our 30 goal in season striker. There you go. We're going to build the whole team around you. Then you go and sign Harry Maguire. And all of a sudden, when you've got Harry Maguire and Harry Kane, and then you're looking to bring Diablo in, if Diablo's there and you're going, well, we've got Harry Kane there, you just put the ball through him. All of a sudden, it's starting to click a little bit more and you're like, shit, these are back. Mm. Yeah, that's the that's the thing with Manchester United because they have such finances. They have the global fan base. Yeah, with with a couple of signings there, because I actually think I know De Gea dropped another bollock there at the weekend, but you know he's still a fantastic goalkeeper. You look yeah. across the back four. I don't think it, I don't think there's any major issues there with Manchester United. You know, I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Wan Bissaka. I've spoke you know highly of of Maguire. I think um, uh, Lindelof alongside him will will be fine. Um, I, I just think their problems, as you said, a reliable goal scorer who is going to get you twenty goals plus, and a, a, a midfielder who wants the ball, who's brave, who will show up when the chips are down who wants to take the responsibility to unlock a defence or grab the game by the scruff of the neck. Because if you think of maybe the level that the team, you know, the top two teams are at now, you know, can you imagine that midfield against Liverpool or City pressing, moving the ball quickly? Did steamroll them. Well, it is. And then, you, you, you know, you're looking at the further details of Manchester United. Manchester United, to get the very best out of Pogba, for me, you, you can't be playing him in a midfield two and deep line. You need to get him further up the pitch so we can affect it. Technically, the lad is outstanding. He's, he's not for me. I've made that clear. But I think if you get him further to the opposition goal and take as much as you can away from him defensively, well, then you will see the, the real Paul Pogba will play for Juventus. So... For me, Manchester United should have just went, went out and showed that they are a proper... Because as you say, the back four, the back five, there's nothing wrong with that. I like yeah. Luke Shaw. Linda Hoff looks you know, a different player. Last season again, Harry Maguire is very good. Wan-Bissaka is a good defender. Let's get it right. He's nowhere near Trent Arnold, but he's got potential to be. He's only played 45 Premier League games. He's got such good potential. But then Manchester United should have... If Manchester United had Fabinho and um, Henderson... As a midfield two sitting with Pogba to do what he wants, putting the ball to Diablo and Harry Kane, then you're going, oh, wow. 
Now, that is, a, that is a team all of a sudden. But when you're relying on Jesse Lingard, who's not scored a goal or an assist for 400 years, <laughs> I mean, seriously, though, what chance have you got? As a front man of Man United, you're going, Pop was too deep. He can't really do a great deal for me. And I'm relying on Jesse Lingard to create stuff who's not had an assist. I think this, this someone put a stat up, or my mate Ben might have told me, he's had one assist in the last 14 months. There's a tweet doing the rounds at the moment that compares the output of Jesse Lingard to Adam Johnson. And Adam yeah, Johnson's yeah. got more assists and he's been in jail for three, three, the last three years. Yeah. <laughs> Which is incredible, <laughs> isn't it, when you think? <laughs> right, so moving on from Manchester United, the last topic that I want to touch on before we wrap up, and we spoke about this today, um, is the plight of Berry and Bolton. Yeah. Now, both clubs, I think it's fair to say, you know, unbelievable the, the turn of events. You know, it looks now, you know, since we spoke about it today, that the, the takeover bid for Bolton has fell through. And you said to me today when we were talking about potentially using this as a topic, do you think that Bolton would, could potentially be wrapped up? So I think the, the first question before we dive into it in detail is, how can that be allowed in both cases to happen? How can clubs like Bolton, you know, both clubs with such history, be that this close to, to wrapping up? Yeah, to say, I mean, I've, I, honestly, I've played a lot of my time of football was rivalries with Bolton. Um, I loved playing at the stadium. They were a proper team. I was fortunate enough to play against the Sam Allardyce team with the JJ Koch and all of that. And it's such a good little club. You know, we used to go to the, I always remember playing Tuesday, Wednesday night, and the Gordon's arm rain, the Bolton away. And you were like, this is going to be tough here. This is really going to be tough for Forrest and Leicester. You just look now and it's just such a shame and um, I think the deal today was meant to be the 11th hour deal and they could be they could be forced into liquidation and stripping of the assets in the next day or so and kind of like I'm looking at Bolton and I'm generally first and I think they could be gone because take surely the taking over of a football club and buying a football club and you've only got they're supposedly only got 48 hours well by the time you do all your due diligence and you get the fit and proper test and all of that, well, I can't see how it's going to fit in there. But I just, I really do fear for them. And to, when you look at the clubs, out, I mean, do you think that this could be becoming more commonplace now? You know, there's so so much money now in the kind of upper echelons. You know, the elite of the game, and there's talk around potentially a European Super League now. You know, do you think that this is going to be? become you know more of a regular thing that teams are struggling i know particularly in barry's case i mean you give me maybe you can give the listeners some detail in terms of that you know how how they've probably found themselves in that situation but you know do you think that this is going to become something that we see more regularly now when when the lower league teams struggle to to fill the stadiums and and ultimately they you know they find it more difficult to compete i think it's important to whatever level of club you are that you understand where you are and why you're there and how you're there and how you're going to remain there or how you want to get better what i think the i mentioned to you today about the berry scenario now this fella steve dale or whatever his name is the berry you bought berry he had no clue about football and he's openly admitted that on talksport i've listened to quite a few of his interviews he had no clue about football he had no clue who berry was or where they were he didn't even know berry had a football team so therefore, big punch made to what would flag up to me like a, a, a red bag to a bull. He had no clue who Berry were or they were a football team. Or he'd never been to the place. So straight away, you kind of like, well, why are you buying them if you know nothing about it? And I just feel like he kind of, this has been a little bit of a toy for him and it's bit him on the arse. 
Now, the first problem what he had is when Man City moved into their lovely new state-of-the-art training complex, Betty took over the lease on Man City's old training ground next to Man United's training ground. Now, Man United don't, uh, Manchester City don't charge him a rental income for it, but he had to maintain the upkeep and he had to keep all of the staff on who were working there. Now, the, the figures, what I've heard, is in circular of a million pounds a year. When I was at Tramia and we were in the second division, our budget was about 650000 for the year, playing budget. So there's a million pound budget on the team straight away. Bang. That's a problem. That's a problem straight away. It's okay that this fellow's coming in. We've got a wonderful training complex, but that's that's most. If you you'll probably find Jamie that if there's twenty four teams in League Two, I bet you there's only two or three whose budget are over playing budget are over a million pound a season. Yet they're spending that in the training complex. They are players who've been on ten thousand. Yeah, that's a million quid. But that's a million quid before you've even got to, to to pay a player. Well, there you go. So straight away, you're you're under you're under strength straight away because you've got to find a million pounds to pay for the training complex. So there's a massive problem here. That's before you've got a player in, and then they were bringing in players on on ten and eight thousand pounds a week. So that's another problem. So you can't pay players eight and ten thousand pounds a week at League Two. I think the highest paid player at Tommy when we were there was eleven hundred pounds a week, and we were trying to get him off the wage bill. So do you, do you think because there's a, because there's a lot that's made of uh, lower league clubs, and particularly when you look at the the situation that that Barry have found themselves in, there's a lot of talk in the newspapers around you know the likes of your Manchester Cities or the local you know the big clubs in the local area doing more. To help out, do you think that that's fair? That you know, big clubs should swoop in and, and try and help, or do, you know, or do you think that that's unfair on 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 those clubs to to have that expectation thrown at them? Well, I thought about it. I think I mentioned to you today when I when we spoke about putting this in the podcast and speaking about it. And my first thought a while ago, when when I was thinking about it, was you know what? To joke this, the likes of Man City, and you know, but then I thought, well, hang on a minute. You listen to Jurgen Klopp's interviews when Liverpool fans were clamouring for huge money signings, and he's like, we've got bills. We have bills to pay. We have to maintain profit. We have to do this, that, and the other. So why should these super clubs like Man City, Man United, uh, Liverpool, even Everton, who were run properly as a profitable business, pay for the mismanagement of one of the owner of Betty? Because that's what it is. Betty's gross mismanagement. It's nothing to do with that Betty's got no money and it's all gone wrong. And It's because a manager's gone in with his big ego saying, I want this superb new training complex. I'll pay a million pounds a year out of this. I'm going to bring a centre-forward in and give him £10,000 a week. I'm going to get a centre-midfield player in and give him six rounds a week. But that's gross mismanagement. So why shouldn't then Man City and Liverpool and the PFA and the Premier League all go, oh, listen, that's unlucky that. They got promoted last season with the paying probably a £4 million a year budget. But now it's all come and bit them on the arse. So why should the big boys then lay them out of the trouble? What about the likes of your Forest Greens who know where they're at? The Atkinson Stanleys who were on an absolute shoestring year in, year out and make the pennies work and coach the players to improve, to get better, train on a park. That's where Atkinson Stanley train. You train on a university or a park. 
So why should they all come and swoop in and save Barry when the likes of Athens and Stanley are fighting just as hard as Barry, but make it work? You know, when you when you look at these situations, though, the people that I feel sorry for the most are the fans because you know they're yeah. you know they're having the club that they've loved and followed their whole life ripped out, ripped apart, and and the players. You know, yeah. there was an interview there that went out on Talksport with the the Barry captain. And uh, yeah, seeing him and now he's a kid of Forest. Really? Yeah. And he was, you know, he was saying how he's not been able to be paid for X amount of weeks. And, you know, if it continues, he could lose his home. Yeah. You know, you forget, you know, there's the human side of this, you know, and the only people that seem to be suffering at the moment are the fans and, and, and the players. Well, it, 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 it is. And it's horrible and it's heartbreaking to see. And as I say, I listened to that interview myself and I thought it was a little bit embarrassing the way the chairman shouting, but you have been paid. Well, obviously the lad hasn't been paid. You're not going to come on a radio and say, yeah. I've not been paid, and then you, you know, you're arguing and saying, "How can you believe a word with this man saying the Betty owner?" And yeah, you do feel you you do feel for that, but then again, you've got to look at it from the flip side, and this is kind of a business point of view. What I'm looking at, Jamie, it's been gross mismanagement from internally at Betty from the top to the bottom. Now. You can't just expect the likes of Liverpool, who are so well run, and I'm using Liverpool as an example because, you know, it's a localist club, and Man City, who are run absolutely... I mean, Man City give Berry the training ground facility. So, you know, it's not as if, like, Man City haven't already given them a, a lift-up anyway. They give them an unbelievable training facility. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed for the for the fans and the players' sake. It all gets... It all gets yeah. worked out. We keep our fingers crossed and, and hopefully the clubs can continue and, and, and get back to where it's where. I hope so. Two great clubs. Two great clubs. Now, with that out, with, that brings us to, to the end of this week's podcast. So, just Christy, when you listen to this, let it be known that next week when you come back, we're still going to talk about the Liverpool Arsenal game. So, you're not getting <laughs> you're not getting away with it scot free. But uh, as always, out. Thank you very much for your time, mate. Cheers, Paul. Thanks a lot, mate. Um, and for everybody else that's listened, thank you very much for, for your time, for your support. It's been fantastic to see so many com- comments coming in week after week and, and obviously telling your friends about the podcast. So please do keep your messages coming in on Twitter. Uh, we love as much debate and interaction on the Twitter account as possible. So with that, I hope you've enjoyed the show. Have a fantastic week and we'll chat to you all again next week on the Boot Room Podcast. All the best. <laughs>